Welcome to the 11th podcast in our series, Life in the Time of Coronavirus. Having been asked to speculate on the concepts of immunity and immunization, Peg Rawls, Professor of Architecture and Philosophy at the Bartlett School of Architecture, thinks about the use of graphic technologies to predict, project and ostensibly protect. Looking at Buckminster Fuller's problematic Dymaxion maps, the artist Tom Corby's graphs chronicling his own long-term illness, and the philosopher Gillian Howey's Meditations on Living with Dying, she situates the pervasive anxiety the virus has unleashed in relation to older and ongoing issues around representation, vulnerability and mortality. When I was first asked to take part in a podcast, I'd actually got the virus, so I wasn't able to respond. And my thinking and my ability to work were really affected by the slow tail of these symptoms, which recur periodically over the following six weeks, which many people will be familiar with, fatigue and inability to concentrate. But now, a bit more uh, further on, I'm reconnecting with these discussions, particularly around the visual vocabularies of what I've really looked at in terms of philosophical, architectural, spatial ideas of life and also non-life. And these are physical and psychical and planetary interests that I've had. So I wanted to think about first the work that I'd done around Buckminster Fuller's Dymaxion maps. And these are these very powerful, charismatic maps and graphs that model energy resources in the period of the Second World War and also afterwards. And it's this is a point when Fuller is working as a technical consultant into Fortune magazine. And they're global energy maps which show a utopic envisioning of the US's geopolitical supremacy and control and modelling of technological and economic certainty and continuity, which is economic, social, technological. And I've rethought these perhaps as examples of a kind of geopolitical immunisation. They are about protection against harm, precarity and weakness, which at that time obviously is the threat of war and of communist, not necessarily invasion, but uh, superiority. But they're also the point when there is a kind of immunisation that's through a massive acceleration of fossil fuel industries. And the other side to them, which I've looked at, which is... I have to say I've not really begun to finish thinking as this uh, conversation of immunisation, but they are really problematic maps also because they have a very disturbing visual vocabulary of slavery and of colonial histories of racism. And this comes through his naming of them as energy slave maps and the principle of an energy slave data visualisation image, a figure, a black figure, who is anonymous and repeated as a unit of labour value to represent machinic labour, which he has written in monographs and in letters he attempted to present as a kind of self-critique of American and US 19th century slavery, but I think are very, very problematic and don't succeed. 
So this was the first reflection around the immunisation discussion and this, this sort of preoccupation with data and uncertainty that I've been undertaking. And particularly the way in which these maps are part of a project of predictive protection. The notion that if you can predict, you can model and therefore create pathways through which progress can take place and societies, populations can be protected. Then obviously, if we think about now and the kind of social and political responses to the coronavirus pandemic, there isn't just a kind of visual data experience. There's also the experience which is very temporal, the experience of how our everyday life patterns rhythms, durations have changed and these are both ones that happen on a daily, a weekly, now obviously a monthly basis. And I think conversations about this are something that could still take place very fruitfully for some time. But I wanted to just highlight on these for those of us or those who are required to stay at home and shield, possibly for an extended period of time of isolation, even today, although the shielding guidance is changing and those who are shielding are now encouraged to be able to go out if they wish. They are the part of the community who are vulnerable. There is a question about vulnerability and uncertainty, which is, I think, not necessarily distinct, but it's perhaps more intense than it may be for certain other members of the population. And it also affects those who are responsible for or part of the community um, or the household that a person who is shielding may live in. So this is where the notion of the herd immunisation, this sort of self-protection, I think becomes one where there is a set of problems that for me seem to be part of this question of temporality that I think raises questions of fear and insecurity and speed as part of the experience of the lockdown in the UK. The other reason for mentioning this is that this ties into work that I've done, thinking about those individuals and communities who have lived with uncertainty previously. And in this respect, I'm thinking particularly of individuals who have experienced change or who have a compromised immunity, which also comes through in the work that they might produce their visual artistic work of corporeal models of scientific data and visual information. And these are individuals who may produce uh, visualisations, uh, images, artworks of their lives under a degree of vulnerability or risk, which is part of this you know, very interesting tradition of the kind of medical humanities and also of really fantastic and very important artists and thinkers who've looked at this. And many of these people obviously have died and, you know, as part of their personal context. So what I'm going to talk about in a minute is a bit more detail is the visualisations of a cancer patient's um, daily charting, his index, daily effective index of his disease of a cancer, but also of his disease, his psychological and emotional disease while going on, undergoing the treatment. And then also say a little bit more about the epidemiological issue of the COVID-19 impacts on these vulnerable communities and others, obviously particularly the BAME community and those older members of our population. And then finally, I will come through to think about the sort of bodies of work that life-limiting illness refers to, and this is the work of Gillian Howey and her notion, this very powerful image, political imaginary of living with vulnerability and uncertainty that she has written about in her late work. So the first person I wanted to sort of highlight is a British artist called Tom Corby. 
who works often on the environmental and the biological and the human intersections of data, but also of the bodies that come from the environment and are environmental and climatic. And in a piece of work called Blood and Bones, Metastasizing Culture, which he began in 23, Corby visually charts the daily modulations of living for extended periods of time with self-isolation during very substantial oncology treatments. And so this project, which is a series of graphs, it's a website and has been exhibited both in hospitals but also in art galleries, is a collection of works that shows through a range of different media, including graphs, how his body produces what he's called effective psychological and physiological data and information. So he's playing on this notion of a kind of bio, biometrics, biopolitical visualisation. And a series of graphs that I was thinking of particularly present the data that he recorded during a treatment called PAD. And this is a particular combinatory treatment. It uses three drugs, one which is called bortezomib, another doxorubicin, and then finally dexamethasone, which is the drug that most recently has been talked about as one of the very helpful, actually also very cheap drugs available that can assist in supporting individuals who've got critical symptoms and are hospitalised with COVID. And these are it's a drug treatment that he received prior to a stem cell transplant later in the same year. And they chart in very small, quite sort of everyday and rather prosaic graphs, the rise and fall, and in fact the entire removal of his immune system in order to prepare for a stem cell transplant. So they track the blood platelet production, the neutrophils and core components of his immune system, as well as his daily records of the psychological experience of treatment during this period of time. So there's a way in which these images are these sort of effective visualisations of disease of a very severe transformation of the immune system and also of the disease of living with a life-limiting illness. I mention it really because I've seen Corby's work as an example of an individual who's lived with a life-limiting illness and has had to develop skills of self-isolation which are similar to those which he and others may be going using now, but which many of us have had some sense of or a proximity to during the lockdown. And I think this is a very interesting kind of power. It's obviously something about vulnerability, but it is also, I think, a different kind of sense of self-immunisation from the herd discussions that have come through from the science and the kind of political discussions. These graphs and daily news reports, which you know we've now not seeing on our screens daily, but are coming through with occasional updates, obviously show the way in which governments, the UK government, is attempting to navigate through the major healthcare and economic crisis. And I think the UK is obviously presenting a very exemplary form of biopolitical rhetoric, which is about a management of resources and... I think many have talked about the sort of cynical following the science aspiration and manipulation that's going on, but also the kinds of languages and the naming of these processes, which are visual, but also obviously have huge impacts on the experience of the public. 
for example, flattening the curve, herd immunity, the issue of these very sort of neat figures of certainty that actually when one is sitting watching in one's uh, living room can be extremely difficult to listen to when you know and think of those individuals who have been affected. And I think this is also incredibly potent, obviously, with the more recent developments of the Black Lives Matter and of the very clear evidence now that has exposed the lack of immunological care for the BAME communities in the medical and health care and also in the public at large. So there's a way in which the COVID-19 lockdown has really exposed the, those who are socially economically vulnerable um, before are individuals who are most at risk. And in this respect, we've got this more, I think, poignant sense of bodies of knowledge rather than these rather glib conceptual figures that we're given by the government as a sense of reassurance. So I've tied these together with the work that I did a few years ago of reading and reviewing the work of the British feminist philosopher Gillian Howey and her philosophical concept of living with dying. And this was a, an experience of reading her work, which I found very profound and actually very empowering, because although we may not all be living with COVID-19 quite so intensively as, the, as with dying, although I think that is actually a very real expression and sense that many of us have, we are, as I was suggesting earlier, closer to this heightened sort of sense of a biological and political condition than we were a few weeks ago. So... I found Bowie very interesting, really, as a way of moving outside some of the kind of current narratives about certainty and as a way of thinking about how do we deal with these increased levels of anxiety that we are living with on an everyday basis and which are absolutely affecting people through financial housing and health futures and insecurities and are also obviously raising very serious questions about how we societally value individuals who are in a position of vulnerability. So what I wanted to just sort of finish with was a short set of notes that I made about Harry's work, because I think they resonate so strongly with the way in which we're figuring out what our context is and where our senses of protection or of boundaries with ourselves and our households and our communities and society generally are enabled or needing to be reconfigured. So it seems like her notion of the ima- this imaginary, I think, really, of a living with dying, which she meant as an empowerment rather than a kind of depressive approach, has a special timeliness for now. I think I've seen it as a kind of way to think about life as an ontology, um, which is quite different from some of the kind of arguments of certainty that, that can come through in certain philosophical work. So I'm going to finish with... Um, quoting from a text that I wrote two years ago. Those who live with life-limiting illnesses or alongside someone with such a diagnosis will recognise how the person can be overwhelmed, mental and physical time and space shut down in distressing, fearful and isolating ways. However, if a person can live through, cope with these intense states of alienation, there can also be times when the disease that lead to a decisive agency for engaging in one's own and others' worlds of self, work, family, community, friendship, politics and poetics. 
Time is lived differently. Not having time means that powers of self-determination for and to oneself are intensified. For some, the trauma of a diagnosis can be put to work and make work, both affirmatively and negatively at the same time. In such phases, the individual and those around them, if the person is able to share their knowledge, may find this creates a living space for a special kind of reasoning, which is affirmative, critical, acutely incisive and hopeful. Thank you for listening. Do send us your feedback and proposals at a.brainchat at ucl.ac.uk and find more talk pieces in the Institute of Advanced Studies website or your podcasts app. Music is by Small House and the BBC Sound Archive. Communications are by Patricia Mascarell-Jombard. Production and edition are by me, Albert brainchat and executive producer is Tamar Carr. Look after yourselves and others. See you soon.